Hi, I'm Shivivani welcoming you to Raise Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and healthcare. As researchers continue to explore the therapeutic possibilities of existing psychedelic drugs, such as LSD and psilocybin, there's been a parallel effort to create new compounds that produce the same beneficial effects, but that come without the health risks or regulatory obstacles attached to currently criminalized substances. We're going to explore that aspect of the psychedelic story today with Ronan Levy, a serial entrepreneur in the space. Highlights include co-founding Fieldtrip, the world's largest provider of psychedelic-assisted therapies, and Reunion Neuroscience, a leader in novel psychedelic drug development. Ronan is also host of the podcast, How We Evolve, and author of the book, The Ketamine Breakthrough, and I had the opportunity to meet him at the Psychedelic Science Conference in Denver back in June. So Ronan, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's good to see you again, Jeff. Likewise. And, you know, we always like to ask our guests to, in their own words, tell us about their career paths. I mean, I know you worked as a lawyer for many years before going into entrepreneurship. You know, what was that like? Sure. I, I've, I've gravitated towards using the word non-ordinary, which is actually a term that's used very often in the psychedelic context about non-ordinary states of consciousness. But I've kind of gravitated towards it because I kind of like to think of myself having trodden a non-ordinary path. So as you mentioned, I, I did business school, went to law school, became a lawyer, quickly realized that the practice of law is a, is a soul-sucking profession, at least for me, uh, and quickly tried to get out as fast as possible. And along the way, I got to do some fun things. Like I, I ended up being a lawyer at Much Music and MTV Canada and got to live out some childhood rock star fantasies, even though I was never very good at guitar. But I got to hang out with some rock stars for a while, which is pretty fun. And then kind of cut my teeth in, in digital technology as everything was moving from television to YouTube. And that's how I got involved with some other companies doing some cool work in the online media. And that's where I really learned how to lean into embracing my non-ordinary worldviews in many ways. Always been slightly contrarian, always loved doing things that people say you can't do. And so when those opportunities from an entrepreneurial perspective opened up in cannabis back in 2013, and then with psychedelics in 2019, it was just a natural thing for me to gravitate towards in part because of my love of doing things people say you can't do and in part because having come through a legal upbringing professionally i had a lot of appetite for regulatory and legal risk and, and hurdles which gave me a lot of comfort navigating areas where a lot of people would feel uncomfortable you know in the, in the opening you talked about some of the health risks and, and stigma around classic psychedelics it's like, i love that kind of stuff. First of all, there's no, the health risks around classic psychedelics are very minimal. So I think we should just change the nature of that conversation. Not zero, but we really need to think about how we think about psychedelics and rethink how we think about psychedelics in the first place. But that stigma, it's, I kind of delight in that because when I know that I'm on the right side of history when it comes to these kind of things, when people have stigma around it, it's a great opportunity to have pretty significant impact on the world. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the conference we all attended back in June kind of highlighted that the ties have shifted. I mean, I had Mike Mithoffer at MAPS and, and Rick Doblin on the podcast over the last several months, too. And, you know, they were talking about how the original psychedelic science conferences were, you know, you barely get anyone to, to you know, they want to show up with masks on so they weren't stigmatized versus, you know, 12,000 people strong and people who are very successful entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as successful academics. So maybe... Can you give us the origin story about what got you personally interested in psychedelics? Sure. It was it was a confluence of factors. The, the two probably primary ones were, A, 
myself and actually the co other co-founders of Field Trip were very active in the medical cannabis industry in Canada and then what became the adult use recreational industry in Canada. We started the largest network of cannabis specialized medical clinics in Canada, which got acquired by Aurora Cannabis, which is still one of the world's largest producers of, of cannabis, most both medical and recreational. The interesting thing is I got into cannabis and my co-founders got into cannabis. We weren't cannabis guys. I had tried cannabis maybe a handful of times. Joseph, my partner, had tried it zero times. So I got into it simply from a philosophical perspective of the war on drugs doesn't make a whole lot of sense. People shouldn't go to jail and have their lives ruined for smoking pot. It's happening. Let's just recognize it. And let's recognize that it's actually pretty safe. All those things we got told in high school were gross exaggerations of the truth. And what we saw, uh, truthfully, is that the people we worked with in our clinics were genuinely sick people who genuinely got better through cannabis medicine. And that was eye-opening for me. That opened my eyes to this thing called plant medicine, which I always used to put in quotes and like plant medicine because I was skeptical of it. Again, I had no issue if people wanted to use cannabis or psychedelics or whatever, for whatever reasons, but I was skeptical of the notion that it was medicine until I saw it firsthand. And we helped hundreds of thousands of Canadians. And then I was like, oh, that's pretty significant. There's a whole medical healing regime that we're ignoring because people made up some lies, truthfully, in the 1960s to scare us. And so after we left the cannabis industry, I had we had a conversation. Someone was doing some work with psilocybin. And I'm like, what? Psilocybin is a thing? And I had remembered that Peter Thiel had invested in some company doing something with psilocybin or something along those lines. And we started looking into it. And if we thought the health impact we were having and could have with cannabis was big, as we dug into the research around psychedelics, we realized the impact we could have with psychedelics was that much larger. And we jumped into it. And that happened to dovetail with my own personal views, which has never been very drug forward. I, I didn't do drugs at all in high school and, and barely touched them most of my life. But I've had a long meditation and, and spirituality practice. And so I saw psychedelics as being a stepping stone for helping people open up to things that I was closed off to for most of my life. Like I was a hardcore skeptic, you know, a very logical person. Anything that couldn't be scientifically or empirically validated was BS in my mind. And then you realize how limited of a worldview that is. And so my meditation and spiritual practice opened me up to that and it changed my life. And I realized that psychedelics could be a stepping stone to engage other people in that conversation who may otherwise just totally be closed off to that conversation. And, and that's what spurred my interest. Those, those two confluences of events were, were really what drove it. Yeah, no, I appreciate how articulately you've put it there. A similar story for me where, you know, growing up, son of a doctor, so all drugs are bad. You, you got to stay away from it. Plus, obviously, the D.A.R.E. program in the U.S. where, you know, oh, yeah. you think that if you take one puff of, of a joint, a week later, you'll be shooting up heroin in an alley somewhere. And so certainly those those misconceptions, I think, are being addressed. We had Fred Barrett, who you may know from Hopkins on the podcast, and he talked about the LSD scale being used to show how addictive substances are relative to LSD, which is not addictive. So let's talk about the actual business of psychedelics, because a lot of the people we've had on this podcast are wonderful researchers and clinicians doing the great work companies like Reunion and Field Trip have grown upon. Tell us about your foray into field trip, because obviously it became one of the largest, if not the largest provider of psychedelic therapy. For our audience who may not know what field trip is, maybe you can talk us through the origin story and what you accomplished with field trip. Absolutely. And I think it's important to maybe start with the end of that story because it's germane to talking about the business, which is 
we filed for creditor protection with Field Trip in March because even though we had successfully raised a lot of money and created a lot of awareness, uh, actually creating and running a profitable business, providing psychedelic assisted therapies, at least presently, it was very challenging. And I'm happy to nerd out on that, but I don't think we have enough time in this podcast to go too deep into that. But Field Trip was born, honestly, after we had, after we left the cannabis industry and had this one random conversation about psilocybin, there was that electric spark in me that told me that something really exciting was happening. And I'm like, we got to do something in psychedelics. This is really exciting. Unlike cannabis, though, where regulations had changed, many states have legalized either medical or recreational use. Canada had medical use and was moving towards recreational use. There was no legalization happening in psychedelics. So I, I had a sense it was on the horizon, but wanted to get started now. And so we did a lot of research and we identified a couple of areas of opportunities of work we could do right now. One was opening mental health treatment centers using ketamine-assisted therapy, ketamine being an FDA-approved drug. Ketamine has a bad rap. I don't know if you've had many conversations about ketamine, but it's actually quite a powerful, important medicine globally. I always knew of it, again, as the horse tranquilizer. So I'm like, ketamine, why would you use that? But then you do the research of how powerful and potent ketamine is, not just as an anesthetic, which is what it was initially approved for, but as a mental health treatment, and then it really shifts your perspective. So we decided that we wanted to start opening ketamine-assisted therapy centers kind of as a precursor for the eventual anticipated approval of MGMA-assisted therapy. And, and today we're talking, it's September 14th, and, and MAPS just released its the phase three pivotal study results, which show how tremendously effective MGMA-assisted therapy is. And, and so we started building clinics. We ended up scaling up to about 12 clinics doing ketamine-assisted therapy in North America, one in the Netherlands actually using psilocybin-assisted therapy, where psilocybin is legal. And in terms of the impact we had, it was tremendous. You know, I, I still state to this date, we had the most effective legally available mental health treatments using ketamine-assisted therapy anywhere in the world. Because on the average, our clients would see their depression and anxiety scores go from severe to mild or non-existent. And those benefits would last six months. You know, current treatments using antidepressants or conventional therapies, they, 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 they move the needle for some people, but usually it's fairly marginal. And we were giving people effective near total relief from the depression and anxiety for six plus months. It was it was incredible. But it was hard to build a business on because it was not insurance coverage and it's not inexpensive. So that was part of the field trip story. The other part of the story, which you alluded to in the introduction, was novel psychedelic development, which is MDMA, LSD, psilocybin. These are wonderful, potent compounds that can create tremendous health effects. But the business of medicine is not always aligned with necessarily good medicines, right? And the challenge with MGMA-assisted therapy and psilocybin and LSD-assisted therapy is that they're very long treatments. You know, a typical LSD treatment would be 12 to 14 hours. You need space, you need doctors, you need therapists. You can see how tremendously expensive it can get to do that, especially without insurance coverage. So if you could develop new molecules that were more targeted, shorter acting, you know, et cetera, uh, you may actually be able to create medicines as potent as these ones, but just, you know, truthfully, administratively and medically more efficient so we can reach more people. And that was the impetus behind reunion neuroscience. We had taken a known psychedelic compound for HODIPT, which is very interesting because it's very similar to psilocybin. 
in terms of its subjective and objective effects, but is much shorter duration. So we modified that molecule to make it more shelf stable, make it more soluble, make it a better medicine per se. And that's what Union Neuroscience was working on was just you know, improving on what was already great, but making it more aligned with our existing medical infrastructure. Thanks for sharing all that about Field Trip. I think it's important for our audience, many of whom are healthcare entrepreneurs or obviously medical nursing and other students who want to get in the space, both as therapists and researchers, but also as entrepreneurs like yourself. I think that's important to see and learn from. But yeah, you preempted my question about reunion because that's very interesting. You know, you guys have been doing some really interesting work for the last couple of years. Maybe you can explain to our audience too about like, there's this question in psychedelics of like whether you need the actual subjective effects or if you can just, you know, go through the biological pathways. Gould Dolan is another person at Hopkins who I've, I've gotten the chance to, to meet, who gave great presentations at, at Psychedelic Science talking about those effects, right? Increasing just BDRNF, a brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And then tell us a bit about like what, what compounds you all are working on at a reunion. Do you think it's possible to have the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics without the subjective effects, the visual hallucinations and those kind of things? Yeah. So as mentioned, we had, we were focused on on a single, we, we had explored a number of opportunities and there's a number of molecules, novel molecules in the pipeline at Reunion, but the nature of drug development is that it's so expensive. You have to be very specific on which ones you pursue. So we were pursuing a molecule called RE104, uh, which was a prodrug essentially of for HODIPT. So psilocybin analog with shorter duration of effect. And then the basic thesis was if you could deliver, deliver all the experience and effect of a psilocybin journey in two hours, as opposed to four to six, then that's just a better medicine. And so we were focused on developing RE104 for postpartum depression, because one of the interesting things about postpartum depression is there's only ever been I think, one drug approved for the use in postpartum depression. And didn't work very well. And it required the mother to be separate from the baby for something like 60 hours, which is a long time. Whereas with RE104, the washout time was pretty short. And probably within 12 hours, you could potentially go back to nursing your baby. So there was not only advantages for the mother and the treatment, but also for the child. And that was our focus. And that continues to be the focus. So that, you know, I think our reunion will be entering phase two trials probably early next year uh, and continuing to, to do the work as to the more philosophical question as to whether the subjective effects are essential to the outcomes, I, I'm not sure. My, my sense is, yes, they're probably important to the outcomes. And, and, and that's just based on looking around this world, which is we're in a global mental health crisis. It can't just be that our biology is totally screwed up and a quarter of people's bodies are just not working properly and causing all of this depression and anxiety, et cetera. Now, sure, there's probably biological and physiological and environmental drivers of this as well, but you ask me, it's probably a bigger commentary of the state of how we live our lives, You know, what we value, where we spend our time, what's important to us, how we define ourselves. And to work through that, it's not just about a, a passive take a pill, feel better, it means doing the hard work. It means evaluating the things that we value and the principles that we hold and how we spend our time. And those subjective effects, I found in my personal experience with psychedelics is where you where you start to get that awareness and insight. So it's, yes, partly the biological, physiological mechanisms of the psychedelics that help as a response to, you know, 
frankly, the brain damage that we have suffered through depression and anxiety. But I think equally as important is just the awareness, you know, and, and you just have to look at like, the truth is like therapy works. Many, many forms of therapy work. It just takes a really long time. And that's usually evaluating your life, your decisions, your confidence, all of that kind of stuff. Psychedelics in my mind are just a very good way to expedite where you're trying to get to in therapy, where you get there in an afternoon as opposed to like two years of work. So, so my sense is you might find non-hallucinogenic psychedelics work as a depression treatment and, and improve people and help people get a bit better. But I think if you look at the long-term resilience or sustainability of these treatments, my, my guess is you need that subjective effect because it's subjective overall experience that we're talking about it's not just the brain chemistry i think i think that aligns pretty well with what i've heard from people like mike midhoffer who the data is showing for ptsd they've done follow-up studies much longer than six months you know three years five years and they've seen that even without extra administration of mdma other sessions with mdma just the the fact that they opened up this perspective shift in the in the patients with ptsd wound up leading to not just the same levels of reduced symptoms of PTSD, but further improvements just because they became completely different people. And I think the same, the same applies, as you said, to therapy, to travel, to reading books, like anything that shifts your perspective can be effective there and help you re reform your identity, break patterns that leading, leading you to have that anxiety, depression, or whatever mental health condition you may suffer from. But psychedelics, is, as you've said, are, are a much more predictable way to get there. That's exactly it. And, and truthfully, I mean, you look at some of the studies too, which is not only, you know, there's the pro-social side effects of psychedelics, which people find they're more empathetic and more creative and, and all that kind of stuff. But also the reports that in many cases, uh, a person's experience on psilocybin, in particular the psilocybin trials, tends to be one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives. It's like, what a what a wonderful thing to offer somebody, right? Like it's like that's wonderful and and i know a lot of people don't like the idea of taking psychedelics either because you know much of their upbringing was in a dialogue of what we were used to with the dare programs and how dangerous they are and start to shift that mentality but truthfully the, the conversations i've had with many people is they're like oh you know the research sounds amazing i don't want to give up control like i'm not comfortable giving up that level of control and my sense is is the truth is is exactly what you need to get out of your depression and anxiety is learning to give up control. And so that's why some of the subject, I still sort of stand on the belief that the subjective experience is important to the durability of the outcomes that we talk about. Yeah, makes sense. You know, we, we talk a, a bit about obviously the mental health crisis. Even later today, I have the director of the NIMH, Dr. Joshua Gordon, on the podcast. You know, he was, he gave a keynote, as you know, at Psychedelic Science. So that's been a major focus of osmosis. But We've also had people like David Yaden uh, at Hopkins, who's the Rowan Griffiths professor, talking about human flourishing, which is what you're getting at. Maybe just by nature, like whether or not you have a diagnosis of PTSD or depression, these compounds may be very helpful for you to just be more content with life, get more joy out of life. I'm curious whether it was field trip or any other endeavors you've you've seen, if there are protocols specifically for that, right? For groups of people, I'm pretty partial to healthcare professionals who are feeling burned out or have moral injury, who need to reconnect to their purpose or entrepreneurs like yourself, who, you know, if you can uh, tap into the power of founders and help them not only reduce their stress or anxiety, but also build more socially conscious companies, better cultures, whatever it may be, you have high leverage. 
did you guys ever explore or have you been exploring specific protocols for those kind of groups? Unfortunately, not. not. It, it sounds like a wonderful endeavor and other than my own self-experimentation with psychedelics, not total self-experimentation. I've done it with therapists. I've done it with guys. I've done it in the proper container in, in most most instances no it'd be i would love to explore that you know it, it's definitely an area of interest to me and, and in fact even though it's not specifically the mission of it i'm gonna think about it now so my next venture is one called the non-ordinary therapy company and one of the lessons we learned on a business perspective from a business perspective field trip is that the cost of providing psychedelic assisted therapies is expensive and most people who are using psychedelics are going underground and they're going to underground therapists. They're going to Peru for ayahuasca retreats, Costa Rica, you know, all of these things. And truthfully, I think most of it is wonderful, but very few people are getting adequate ongoing integration. From my perspective, integration is a lifelong commitment. It's like once the, once the doors of perception, quoting Alpha Suxley, have been opened, keep walking through it, like keep doing the work. That's how you're going to get the real change that you want to affect, not the two to three integration sessions that you may get after a retreat. And, and so the design of the non-ordinary therapy company is wherever you're having your psychedelic experiences, that's wonderful. And we're helped there to help do the work, to extend the neuroplasticity, to extend that glow, to make sure you get the maximum impact from your sessions. And part of the reason we're not interested in providing the drugs or having the doctors is because as soon as you have doctors and regulated professionals, the scope of what they can do gets really limited, right? It, it is kind of a perverse outcome that the most qualified people to provide and be focusing on this work are the least free to do this work because of regulatory limitations. And, and so we want to create something where we had a lot more flexibility from a, a regulatory perspective. So if we wanted to go out and be like, hey, we want to focus on founders who have done ayahuasca and work with them to develop you know, protocols to enhance human flourishing or make you a better entrepreneur, we have a lot of liberty to do that. Whereas most doctors don't, unless they go through an IRB approval and all that kind of stuff, and, and which is effective and it's important in, in certain contexts, but it really does stifle innovation in areas where it's happening already right we're, we're we're not stopping someone from doing it they're doing it anyway so it's it's not it's kind of a harm reduction conversation but more it's like a benefit maximization conversation within the broader harm reduction overall discourse absolutely that's definitely a thread i would love to pull on and, and your focus of the non-ordinary therapy company is, is one of the lines one of the main reasons i went back to medical school at, at hopkins is, is again to work with people like david yaden and Manisha Agrawal at Sunstone, who you may know, and and something I've been pitching and probably will be working on is is a study of founders and healthcare professionals' perceptions and use of psychedelics to see if there are any specific protocols that could be developed for very niche but high leverage groups. You keep a physician in practice for an extra year, that's another thousand patients who are helped likely. So maybe something a thread we can pull on after this. I'm aware of your time, so I only want to take a, a couple more minutes for some questions. First is what advice would you give to our audience about, you know, say they're interested in going into entrepreneurship related to psychedelics, mental health, you know, any lessons you have tremendous experience in building and growing companies in the space, any lessons you'd like to share with them? Sure. I would say this, which is I'm I'm 100% convinced that the psychedelic movement is going to create tremendous economic and entrepreneurial opportunities. 
there's no doubt about that. So it's going to be a massive industry in many ways. I think it's going to displace most forms of mental health care currently provided. So if you think about the size of that economic opportunity, it's massive. However, it is unclear the path that's going to get there, right? Like many people are talking about psychedelics. Almost all the people you probably met at psychedelic science that you and I met at psychedelic science, they're not going to doctors. They're not in the medical system, right? They're doing it underground. And so, you know, if you want to get into the space, I think the low hanging fruit opportunity is, is not going through the regulated system, not thinking about creating clinics with doctors, but how do you support what's already happening instead of trying to insert a medical angle? There will be opportunities for the latter piece, but it's still a little bit murky to me. Whereas if you can find ways to support the community of truthfully millions of people who are people who are already using psychedelics in various capacities, that's a more interesting opportunity in my mind. And then those who are willing to push the limits of, of regulatory bounds, I think are going to succeed because it's just the na- nature of regulators and, and regulation that they're inclined, they're disincentivized to support innovation because it makes their job harder. And as entrepreneurs, our job is to push those boundaries and then find the appropriate balances because left to their own devices, usually regulation doesn't achieve the optimal outcome. Even though it's necessary, there has to be a push-pull in my experience. And and so, you know, if you're going to do this, I'd suggest you be open to exploring the gray areas of of regulation and, and, you know, pushing the limits because in the words of the Grateful Dead, someone has to do something, right? I think the continuation of the quote is, it's just incredibly pathetic, it's us. But I don't think it's incredibly pathetic, it's us. I think it's awesome. But you know, you really have to, I, I strongly encourage people to to be bold, be brave. You know, the expression of fortune favors, favors the bold. And I do think within this space, thoughtfully, respectfully, being bold is is going to serve people well. Absolutely. I mean, how, how often do our audience and ourselves use Uber and Airbnb, just other examples of companies that push the regulatory framework and, and have been very successful and frankly, just improved our experience as consumers. So maybe there's an Uber or Airbnb of, of psychedelic therapy out there that does it responsibly, obviously, like that's like table stakes, the Hippocratic oath of doing no harm first and foremost. So 100%. You know, as you know, Osmosis is a teaching company. We do a lot to fill in knowledge gaps, first with medical students, but now we have an audience of over three and a half million current and future healthcare professionals around the world. If you could snap your fingers and teach them, say, build a course or build just even a simple video, what would it be on and why? I would say this, in my experience, both in the cannabis and psychedelics industries, cannabis and psychedelics, psychedelics more so, cannabis less though, they don't fit into a traditional healthcare box, right? What we saw and I'll specifically reference the cannabis industry is that most doctors initially want nothing to do with it. In fact, we're opposed to cannabis being part of anybody's medical health regime. And with time and education, we shifted a lot of perspectives. And it got to the point where a lot of doctors were like, I'm very supportive that my patients use cannabis, but I'm not going to touch it still because I don't know how to triage it. It doesn't fit into my normal checkbox of things about how I do medicine. And it just showed me how close-minded the medical practice, not all doctors, I'm not accusing all doctors of that, can be. And if you just open your mind a little bit and, and decide to like, okay, let's explore, let's experiment, let's be thoughtful and focus not on following the rules of procedures, but actually doing the best for your clients or your patients, I think it's going to be super powerful. And it was just eye-opening to me how closed-minded many physicians were 
to anything they didn't understand. And, and that's just unfortunate. That doesn't mean, you know, be reckless. It means go out and find understanding, even if it doesn't fit the traditional notions of how you like to understand things. Uh, that would be my advice to every healthcare practitioner out there. Yeah, no, that, that's great advice and something, I think there could be a course or something around examples of that ranging from Joseph Lister, uh, you know, about infection control, H. pylori causes gastric ulcers. It was a really, really fringe, fringe to believe that and the, the Nobel laureate who discovered that had to actually take it to prove that. So Michael Mithoffer said something similar where he was stigmatized at MUSC and now they want to actually build a psychedelic center there. <laughs> so you know, as you said, fortune favors the bold and you kind of just have to be patient and keep going. Last two questions, uh, general advice for our audience about approaching their careers, not not just if they want to be entrepreneurs, but just be healthcare professionals or be successful at whatever they do. Well, you actually touched on it. It's an area of exploration right now, which is why is there such an emphasis on success in our society, right? We, we define success as being know, having a job, creating impact, but that's a very paternalistic, you know, worldview. And it's, listen, what I subscribe to, I'm an entrepreneur, I like growing businesses and all that kind of stuff. But I've, having had the last six months since I left field trip to kind of reflect, I, I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs who are doing really interesting stuff. And I'm like, why, why are you trying to scale? It's like, you're super happy right now. You love what you do. You travel around the world. You can stand up in front of people. You know, scaling turns you from what you're doing into a manager, potentially, maybe not, but, you know, think about why you're trying to, to achieve that because we have this growth at all costs mentality, but why it's I actually, I had this thought this very thought this morning. I imagine if you look at the most wealthy people in your network, they're probably also the hardest working, which is in many ways economically irrational. We make money so we don't have to work is the theory as it goes, right? But people who have the most money also work the hardest. It's like, maybe we should stop and, and think about that for a second and, and really stop and think about like what motivates us. And, and the answer is always going to be evolving, but the constant chase of success in quotes really needs to be revisited of like, what does success actually means to me. Maybe that means just spending time with my kids and my wife. Maybe that means build, building a billion dollar corporation. Maybe that, be, that means being an I don't know. But I think we need to take a deep breath and and stop chasing monetary success as a massive driver in our society. It'll, it'll require a huge shift, but that's my advice for anyone's career. Be like, what do you really want to do? What motivates you? What makes you happy when you get out of bed? And start from there and work out instead of starting from, oh, I need a job and then I'll figure out what makes me happy afterwards. Yeah, timeless advice to, to ultimately know thyself, have that self-awareness and understand why you're doing the things you're doing. I think a lot of our audience, including myself, when I started medical school the first time, you know, they don't either admit to themselves or realize it's either willful ignorance or just ignorance, how much of a percentage, maybe societal or parental expectations play in their decisions, you know, prestige around that, making money, whatever it is, and then not questioning or not having the space or time or, or courage, frankly, to question why they're doing what they're doing. And so I think it's useful to hear from people like yourself, who have obviously, once they've won the game, like Naval Ravikant says, once you've won the game, understanding, you know, is there a different gear that you can get into that makes you actually enjoy life in a, in a way that you're supposed to, maybe should be. Okay, last question. <laughs> Anything else on your mind that you want to be able to share with our audience before we let you go? 
No, I, I think that last point is really like my, my hot button issue is like really, really invite uh, an examination of, of what motivates you and what moves you. It's, it's super powerful. And again, drawing a line back to the start of the conversation around the mental health crisis, I think a big piece of that is, is just, you know, how we spend our time and what we chase and what we spend our money on. And if you start, if you invert that triangle and start with the things that matter and work out, it, it's going to serve a lot of us. It's going to take a big shift in how we think about our economy and our politics and all that kind of stuff. I'm not by any stretch saying this is easy, but I think if we want to actually change the course of, of what's happening on our world, then I think in many ways we need to, starting with just what we look at and what we think about is a good place to start. Good thing to end on. I mean, I, I love the arc of this conversation from very specific, practical entrepreneurship stuff to now this bigger question, which I think is, is the question, as, as you've said, too. So, Rona, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast and more importantly, for all the work that you've done to push this field forward. Really, as entrepreneurs like yourself who've, who've shown what models work, what models don't work, that I think have helped lead to where we are right now in the psychedelic assisted therapy space. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I hope we get to do this many more times, Shiv. Likewise. And with that, I'm Shiv Uglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.